Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Podcast number 32. I'm Cam Connor along with my son Chris. So welcome back everyone to episode number 32. Dad, I know that you've actually been kind of busy in the last few weeks doing a variety of different types of interviews. Last week you were interviewed by your hometown Winnipeg radio station, TSN, I believe it's 1290. And that was a particularly fun interview. They asked you some questions that you haven't been asked for a while or new questions you haven't been asked before. And one question they asked you about was your thoughts on Brad Marchand. And you actually gave uh, a good answer. You uh, you were positive towards him. You sound surprised I gave a good answer. <laughs> you know, I actually never saw the punch. But from what I've read, he punched him in the back of the head. Now, first thing I think of, he's got a glove on. Whoever he had has a helmet on. I'm, I don't want to seem cold, but, you know... To me, back when I played, and I'm not saying it's the way it should have been, but boy, that was pretty minor. There was a lot worse going on in the game of hockey. And they said, well, you know, about Brad Marchand. And the truth is, that guy is a hell of a player. He plays on the edge. He plays a little on the aggressive side, which I like. And the guy can win games. And I don't think there's any team in the National Hockey League that they had a legitimate chance to get Brad Marchand that they wouldn't. So, you know what? If he, I think if he just keeps playing aggressive and he plays on the edge, those are the guys that win championships, guys like him. You know, you, he makes you keep your head up. And he's not the, a big guy. And I think the other teams are lucky that Brad's not six foot five playing the way he does. So, you know what? I'm okay with that shot. The league, if they want to suspend him or he did something illegal, he'll get suspended. But overall, I'd have him on my team any day of the week, Chris. And then you also did a, a video interview for the, I believe it's the NHL Players Association. And you can go into a little bit of detail about that, but they basically wanted to know if you had any advice or, or life lessons on when you retired from hockey. Is that right? Yeah, it, uh, it, the interview probably lasted on camera for 40 minutes or so. I don't know what they'll cut it down. I don't even know if they'll use it. But basically, the bottom line is life after hockey. And when your career's over, as we all know, the guys today make huge dollars. And uh, the guys that play today, you could be the worst guy on the team and make $650,000 a year. So if you put any kind of time in playing at the National Hockey League level, you should be able to walk away with at least a few million dollars in the bank. And uh, perhaps you don't have to worry about your future outside of hockey. You could do some real estate investments and so on and so forth and live happily ever after. In our day, there was a few guys making some good dollars, but again, not, not even close to what's happening today. And we have to think about life after hockey. What am I going to do when my career is over? We all pretty well knew we're going to have to work. Now, 
If you can walk into a family business, perfect. That's the way to do it. Lucky. I couldn't. And so myself, like a lot of the other guys out there, we had to make that decision. What do we want to do? So all I told the National Hockey League, um, you know, they were going to talk to Jason, Jason Strudwick, who played for the Oilers and then in Europe for quite a while. He must have enough money put away that he doesn't have to work a full-time job. And Curtis Joseph, they were also going to talk to. And Curtis Joseph made a lot of money. Plus, you know, he's got racehorses. So I'm the only schmuck that they were talking to that's had to really go out and find a 9-to-5 job. And really what I did, it's a big step. And, you know, the game of hockey, it gave me enough confidence that I knew I could survive in the real world. And what I did is I was prepared to go back to school because I didn't want to be the type of father that's laid off every second or third year setting that example to my kids. Now, I mean, if that happens to you, it's unfortunate, but I was going to try to prevent something, that kind of scenario happening to me. So if I couldn't find a good job, then I was prepared, as I said, to go back to school. What I did is I wrote on a piece of paper five occupations that I would like to do and not whether I had the skills to do it but I figure if you got to do nine to five for 30 or 40 years you better do something that you like to do and if you get into a field that you like the odds are it's you're going to catch on pretty quick and if you'd like to do it and you're catching on pretty quick I guarantee you you're going to be doing a good job and when you're doing a good job, year in and year out, the money will follow. So for myself, I wrote down five things. I don't even remember what four of them were, but the first one I wrote down was the work computers. I wasn't too sure, you know, what direction I was going to go there, but, but I knew this is something I'd like to explore. And I would always, I love talking to the fans. And there was one gentleman, his name is Bob Arthur. Bob was uh, uh, a big wheel with Citibank out of New York City. And I talked to Bob, and he's a Ranger fanatic. And he also said to me, your career's coming to an end. Have you thought about what you'd like to do? And I got into a discussion with Bob, and I spent some time. And he said, you know what you'd be good at is computer consulting. And basically what I would do is find people jobs, permanent jobs, within the computer software side, you know, programming or programmer analysts or analysts, so on, or get them consulting work. And so what I did is I I remember I did go to the Rangers. To, I thought, well, maybe if I could get a hold of the season ticket list of some of the Fortune 500 companies, maybe I got a better chance of finding a good job, you know, just going to corporations that had season tickets for the Rangers. I asked Craig Patrick if I could get a list, and he said, no way. So there was no help from him. So what I did is I uh, just went into New York City with a resume that I put together for the last 10 years, and it was all freaking hockey. And I started knocking on doors, and a lot of the HR people, you know, they interviewed me, and they looked at my resume, and they said, well, this is all hockey. How are you going to help me? And basically I said, well, I was hoping you could tell me. I just knew that I just needed to find one company that would say, you know what? You'd, you'd be you're good at being in sales with computer consulting. 
So I found one company, and they started to train me. I got into recruiting, so I interviewed people. And if you ever saw a computer consultant's resume, it's like Chinese, which I can't read. It was like, holy cow, what am I looking at? So it was a big transition. And I've honest to God looked at over five, 6,000 resumes without a question. So, you know, you just take step one. And um, again, I found the company that was willing to train me. And I got into that computer consulting business. And they told me in the first two years when I was a recruiter, I used to take my work home with me every single night. And I'd phone up potential people to see I had their resume and I knew skills that we were looking for. And so I'd phone people up. This is no, I mean, for sure, every night. I'd phone them up watching the hockey game. I have a little trade table and my resume is in front of me, commercial. Get on the phone. And I, I found a lot of people that were looking for work, that had skills that we were looking for. And I was told that I was the best recruiter at that point that they ever had. And it's, it was just hard work, nothing else, but I enjoyed talking to people, so I didn't really find it work. And then I got into the sales side, and uh, that was, uh, you know, that was interesting because now you get in sales, and, you know, it's a little bit advanced from just recruiting. You know, I ended up learning for a couple years. I embarrassed myself, and I remember some of the clients would say, hey, here's the type of resource I need. I didn't have a clue what you just told me. And I, they said, do you understand? And I go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Because I didn't want to embarrass myself and make them think that maybe I was not so smart. So I would uh, I pretend I knew what they talked about, but I didn't. So then I just did a little soul searching one day. And I said, well, you know what? These clients are asking me if I understood. I'm going to just tell them the truth. So there was times when I said, no, I don't understand. And they'd say to me, well, let me just put it another way. And then I said, got it. Now I know what you said. And the reason I humbled myself and said I didn't know what you were talking about is because I figured you got to know the basics of any job you're in. And once you understand the basics, everything else comes easy. So I did the computer consulting for 25 years and I enjoyed it. And so I talked uh, with the alumni in regards to how I first started. And, and I believe you got to find what you like to do. And then once you do that, I think everything else will start to fall in place, but with a little confidence and hard work. So, Chris, I kind of went the long way around answering your question, but that's how I got started into the computer consulting field. And then uh, your, your third kind of interesting point over the last month, and hopefully we're allowed to talk about it, but uh, I guess we will, is that you were asked from uh, a producer at A&E the Network if you can, I guess, go on camera and talk about Roddy Piper's upcoming biography, which I guess is a pretty big deal. So if you want to talk quickly about yeah. what you think is going on there. Well, I think what this gentleman, phoned me from New Jersey, and he's with A&E, and he's a producer, and they're going to do a special on Roddy Piper for an hour, two hours, whatever it was. And Rod's family recommended that they talk to me because I was his friend since about 16, 17 years old, right up until he died. Um, and so I don't think there's too many people that know Rod better than I do. So that's the reason he got a hold of me. 
I don't think he's he's looked at or read Rod's book, so my name's is in there throughout. I don't know if he thought I had anything that was worth talking about, so I just started telling him stories and things, and he asked questions, and this producer, he was laughing quite a bit, and he's, then after about an hour, he said, this is great material. In the next two months, I plan on bringing a, 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 a TV crew down to Edmonton, and we're going to sit down and uh, interview you and put something on film um, that we could use for the A&E special on Roddy Piper. So that's that was uh, that was a real compliment, and I'm looking forward to A&E coming in. And I, I guess you'd like to come along with me, Chris, right? I'm going to have you sit behind me, and you can kind of wave to the camera. Yeah, it sounds like a fun opportunity. I probably will uh, stop, and I'm used to watching you on the sidelines anyway, so this will just be another time where I can uh, watch and learn and uh, get to see what's going on. So for today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about your Stanley Cup predictions, and I think a lot of people are in the same boat as you. Uh, They didn't go as planned, and we also, or you're going to speak about some more Steve Durbano stories, because I believe there's another podcast that in the last couple of weeks is doing a five-part series. I believe it's TSN, but I could be wrong, all about him and his life. And like you mentioned, it's a it's a crazy story and a fascinating one. And I believe it was episode 30 that you shared some of your stories. And so uh, we have a question if, there, if you had any more stories from him, uh, about him. So you do. And so you're going to st- uh, share a few more Steve Gerbano stories. And uh, we're going to answer some more questions questions because you had uh, last week you asked if anyone had some questions for you and some people did so we'll answer those and we wanted to encourage everyone if you can leave us reviews on iTunes it really helps Uh, like we like we say we don't do a lot of promotion so reviews really do help us Uh, you can follow dad on Facebook Twitter is Cam Connor NHL. You're on Instagram. You have your own website, viewfromthepenaltybox.com. And we also have merchandise. And I just picked up myself up a hat that looks really nice. Maybe we'll take a picture and post what it looks like. Uh, so if you wanted a hat or a shirt, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, you, the, the link will be on uh, the show notes for this podcast. You can take a look. We appreciate it. So I guess, Dad, you want to talk about the playoffs and we're kind of at the midway point give or take and talk about your predictions and where they might have went wrong well I was feeling pretty good about my predictions Tampa Bay finished in first place by quite a bit and I'd have to believe without looking at Vegas odds that they had to be the favorites going into the playoffs but that's why the first round of the playoffs is really my favorite it honestly is and a lot of other people I've talked to, that first round, you know, the league is so mm, equal. Even though, you know, Tampa Bay was first overall, they got beat by a team that shouldn't have beat them on paper. But uh, they did, and they're eliminated now. Um, the unknowns happen in that first round, and that's why it's always exciting. So as we're speaking right now, uh, we have St. Louis playing, and uh, who knows what's going to happen in that game. They better win tonight. Otherwise, Dallas is going to be winning four games to two. So so 
my thoughts were after St. Louis beat Winnipeg, I said to myself, you know, that's how that's the team the Oilers should put together. If you look at St. Louis, I think the last 20 or 30 games of the season, they were outstanding. Probably the best team without looking at any stats. And so what what kind of a team do they have? Well, they got a goalie, and I always talk about goalies. They got a goalie who came out of nowhere that is stopping pucks. They got a big mobile team. So when they took on the Jets, you know, they just used their size and they just leaned on Winnipeg, got in their way, and they just grounded out and they won. And that's what I'm thinking that the Oilers, that's what they should be looking forward to. You know, I read in the paper where the CEO of the team, Nicholson, he has said, it's going to be a whole new team next year. Okay. It's easier said than done because you can't just give away your players and expect to, to hit the home runs. you got to give up a good player to get a good player. So I know there's a couple players on the Oilers farm team that are expected to join the NHL team next year, but, you know, we'll see what training camp brings. So the NHL prediction, so I was thinking St. Louis, but nah, I don't know. they got to get by Dallas. And after that, I mean... I don't think anybody really knows. There might be somebody that is picked who eventually is going to be the winner. But right now, Chris, I, uh, you know, I'd be just guessing. So uh, I'm going to stick to St. Louis to beat Dallas today. We'll see if that's right. Okay, so we'll answer a question that you received on Facebook, and it's from Jeremy. And he writes, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the San Jose Vegas Game 7 major call. So what's your thoughts on that? And maybe you can give a little more context to what happened in Game 7. You're right. Well, I saw that, and uh, there was lots of replays. So the centerman took the face off against Pavelski, and he cross-checked him after. He didn't cross-check him in the face. I think it was like in the upper body, which put him off balance. And then whoever the winger was was coming just in the vicinity of where Pavlovsky was falling, and he banged him, and he went down and hit his head. Now, the cross-check cost five minutes in the game, and as we all know, Vegas was up 3 nothing with 10 or 11 minutes to go in the game, and they got four power play goals scored against them in five minutes. That is unheard of. I bet you you could look get all the records, and you're not going to see four power play goals in five minutes. It doesn't happen. If you could get two goals in five minutes, that's a good that's a good power play. But to get four? Unbelievable. And obviously that changed the history, and Vegas ended up losing. Do I think that was worth five minutes? I, I don't. Okay, there was a cross-check. It was two minutes. And then Pavelski got banged by somebody coming through for a loose puck. And that wasn't intentional. But as so many other people have said, you know, the referees, they don't, well, maybe they should have gone and just uh, for a, because, I mean, I think in the playoffs, let the teams decide. To give one team a five-minute power play, you know what? If there was a cross-check to the head and that's what caused him to go down and bang the back of his head on the ice, by all means, he should be getting five minutes and thrown out of the game. But when you got to see the replay, it, that just wasn't the case. But 
that individual paid the price and he's going to feel sick all summer long about what happened. They lost millions of dollars for the owners. I mean, they would have at least three, four more home games. It was a lot of money plus the players, they're just thinking about, you know, winning a cup. That's all they wanted. So that call affected the outcome of the game. And I think in that case, if the rules would allow it, before they make a game-altering decision like that, maybe they should be able to check the replays and just double-check and verify, yeah, that's definitely a five minutes or no. Now that we get to look at it at slow motion, it didn't happen that way. So it's unfortunate that it did happen, but it cost the owner of uh, Vegas an awful lot of money and uh, feel bad for the fans because Vegas was playing some good hockey. So we'll now go to uh, an email question, and if you do have any suggestions or topics or questions, or you just want to say hi, you can always send us an email at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. So this question is from Chris, and he writes, What pieces do you feel the Oilers should add to improve their chances of making the playoffs? Should the Oilers inquire about any of the Leafs' forwards? Is Koskinen good enough? And I will add that about half an hour ago, it was announced that Ken Holland will be the new GM of the Edmonton Oilers. So if you also want to talk about if you know Ken Holland or if you have any thoughts about him and how that will impact the Oilers. You know, when I'm watching this playoffs, and I can't say I've watched every game, um, you know, there's other things going on in my life during the playoffs, but I try to watch as many as I can. And for the Oilers, well, one thing I've realized in the playoffs, I mean, Calgary got bumped, and they got a couple smaller forwards that, you know, all year long they're getting points and they're leading their team. I'm starting to think that when the playoffs come, you might need, which is probably you probably can't do it, but a team that takes you to the playoffs is not necessarily the team that's going to win the playoffs for you. Because when the playoffs come, it's a lot more tight checking. There's a lot more players realizing that if you've got a Johnny Goudreau in front of you that likes to, you know, skate and he's got a speed, your job is to get in his way and you crowd him and you rub him out against the boards. And I think, you know, the team that carries you all year long may not necessarily be, if you don't have that, lineup that will allow you to have your big players being the grinders. And again, I'll go back to St. Louis. That team, they don't have, they got Tarasenko and they got a couple guys that can score. But overall, they got a big grinding team. And So with the Oilers, I'd like to see some more size up front. I'd like to see their defenses getting better and better. The goalie, you know, that's a flip a coin. That goalie is He's like six foot eight. He's a big boy. He tries hard. I think he's everybody likes him. But they've signed him to, a, I believe it was a four year deal for three or four million bucks a year. So he's going to be here. He wants to be the number one goalie. He wants to be the guy that they turn to. And all the big games, he's got to go in there. I'm just not convinced as of yet that the, that is their number one goalie. So it's pretty hard to find the number one goalie. Because they're a commodity. And uh, may maybe you can go to LA Kings. Because they haven't made the playoffs. 
We all know Jonathan Quick, what a goalie he is. He got hurt and it wasn't his best season. Maybe you could pry out a Jonathan Quick out of L.A. Maybe that's what they got to try to do. But I think you got to get, for sure, a number one goalie. You got to get more size up front. And uh, you got to be having grinders and you got to have guys that skate. Now, having said that, go out and try to find that team. I think you have to get them through the draft. And uh, then when you get them from the draft, they have to develop into the player that you vision them becoming. So it's just going to be no easy task for the Oilers. I think they'll make the playoffs next year. I, I really do because if they don't make the playoffs, there's going to be a revolt here in Edmonton. And I just should add that I guess the Ken Holland GM story is a, a strong rumor. They're saying it's expected to be announced. But uh, what are your thoughts on that, Ben? Ken Holland, I think he's 63 years old. And he is a gentleman that's been in management for Detroit for 20, 30 years. He knows how to run an organization. He has a hockey background. He played the game of hockey. I believe that uh, I believe that Ken Holland is probably a good a good choice if they if if he ends up coming here, then the odds are he will come here. I think that's what Chris has said that you know it's a rumor he is, and I think it's probably a good rumor. Uh, Ken Holland's like I said, he's been in Detroit. They've had some fabulous teams. They've won cups under Ken Holland. He knows all the players in the league. And I believe he could be the missing piece that the Oilers need. I think he can do the job, and I think he could start building this team. Torelli, he came in and did his best and tried to add some pieces to the pie. It didn't work. His vision obviously got the chance. It wasn't the right vision. I think Ken Holland, he's got enough experience, and he's going to surround himself with some really good players some good front office guys, some new scouts. And I think he's going to kind of build this organization all over again. And what I heard is if he does come, he wants a free reign. Nobody's going to be able to say you can't or we don't want. He's going to be able to build this team. They're going to show the confidence in him. And that's that's what he deserves and that's what he wants in order to come to Edmonton. You can't come here and say, this is what we got to do, and then somebody higher up says, oh, no, no, you're not doing that. Which, you know, when when Herb Brooks was the coach of the Rangers, he was telling me that, you know, he wanted to put a power play and a penalty-killing unit together. But back then, the Rangers were owned by Gulf and Western out of Los Angeles. And he told me that they used to tell him who to put on the power play and penalty kill. Come on. These are guys in an office in L.A., and they're telling the coach who's done this his whole friggin' life and won a gold medal at the Olympics for the U.S. team, telling him who should be the penalty killers in the power play. You know, you know that they should be giving their heads a shake. So that's what Holland doesn't want, is somebody overriding him once he signs. And so I think they're going to give him that freedom. So if he turns it around, it's, it's because of his vision. And if they fail, it's because of his vision. So I, I gotta believe that that's gonna be a good choice. Just like they're looking, if it's not him, there's rumors that it's Mark Hunter. Um, I know Dave Hunter, and Dave is one of the finest guys, and he's got a good hockey mind. 
and I believe his brother Mark will come in here if if it's Mark and also do a good job. But uh, I like the two candidates that are, whose names I'm I'm hearing floating around. I really do believe they have to start from scratch and uh, keep the core and then change the infrastructure outside of the game of hockey. Um, you should be able to find scouts that go out. If you look at Calgary, they've they built that team up through the drafting. And you get, you know, teams, and I've said it before, that could find the diamond in the rough in the fifth-round pick, in the sixth-round pick. That's what you need. You can't always get the number one or top five. And even if you get that, it doesn't mean they're going to pan out. So, so, so Holland, I think he'll be coming here. Uh, you know, I think we'll make the playoffs next year, but I gradually see us getting better and better as uh, as we move forward. So, Dad, as you were talking about the Oilers, I was thinking back to a time about what not to do with smelling salts. So, since I was probably only five or six, I will let you tell the story. <laughs> and I learned the hard way. Well, I learned too. Well, what's my son saying is when I was still playing with the Rangers, you'll see guys on the hockey team, any team, we call them sniffers. They're just ammonia capsules. So there's a piece of cloth around a little glass capsule, and uh, you snap them, and then you smell this ammonia capsule, and it's powerful. And so when you first get into pro and you get these ammonia capsules, you can barely, you got to hold it away. It, it's pretty powerful. But the longer that, uh, you know, you play the game, the word's not immune. But I, I know towards the end of my career, I could snap two of these babies and put them right under my nose and um, no problem at all. And just to kind of get off topic, we had a guy on our team in Montreal named Rick Chartra. I also played with him in the range organization. Shardy was a wonderful guy, and he broke his nose many times. And his nose was kind of bent under his eye. It wasn't straight anymore. And to see Shardy in the dressing room, you look across and he's smelling. He put the smelling salts under his eye and sniff. It was the weirdest thing anyways. So I got a little off topic, but it made me think about that. So with what my son's getting to, I brought some smelling salts home or some, some ammonia capsules. And I must have had them on a counter or something where he could grab it. And, uh, so he went to, he was sitting on the toilet. Then I hear this kind of screaming and the wife and I, we go take a look. And so Chris has bit this ammonia capsule and, whoa, I didn't know, like nobody I knew ever bit it, but this, this ammonia, it went on his lips and it, it, his lips swelled up 10 times. It was huge. And all the skin began peeling off it. And so I think we scarred Chris. He's never forgot that. He was pretty young. But, I, but I've never had that around the house since then. Did you take any pictures? <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, today you got your phones and everything's got cameras. I, I probably would have just to show you. But no, I, I didn't. They say you can't remember too many things when you're young, but I can remember that clearly. <laughs> My tongue was like 10 times the size. My lips were enormous. I couldn't. They were like two sausages. Oh, there was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was mom mad at you? Oh, of course. She gets mad at me all the time. That was just one more. 
Okay, so we have a question from Lauren, and he emailed asking about uh, what's your take on Chara of the Boston Bruins and why someone does not take this guy out. Enough with him. Thanks, Ken. Well, let's start. I think he's six foot nine. Okay. Now, there are six foot five boys, and there's guys that will fight him. But with Chara, he knows he's a big boy. And from what I've read, that guy is in remarkable shape. Remarkable. He doesn't put anything in his body that that is counterproductive. He eats well. He works out hard. And I guess it's no accident he's 41 and they just signed him to another year contract. So Chara, he, he's... He's an exception for sure. And uh, being six foot nine, you know, he knows he can play a little bit more aggressive. If you fight him, even if he just throws his punches straight ahead, he's, his arms are as long as hockey sticks almost. And so, you know, if you fight Chara, you got to be quick and uh, you got to think about it before you fight him. Because if you just drop the gloves and you just have a regular fight, you're going to get hurt. But I think most guys, they don't want to fight Char just because he's so damn big. This isn't, you know, choreographed like an all-star wrestling. This is real. And, if you know, if Char gets a chance, he's going to bop you with those big hands. And so I think, you know, I think for myself, I'm not, I'm saying it now because I'm not playing against him and I'm not on the ice with him. But I think I probably would have liked to have tried him and just hoping because I did have fast hands that, you know, maybe... I might be able to catch him off guard and get that shot in before he drills me. I don't know. But I think that's the reason most people... There are a few... Uh, and I've seen on the internet where there... And I forgot the guy's name. I think he's from, like, Nova Scotia. Tough boy. And he's, like, 6'5". And I think he used to play for Columbus. He'd go out and he'd try to fight Chara two, three shifts in a row. And they were good fights. But then, you know, Chara's like anybody else. He just stayed away from that guy. He did not want to fight this guy anymore, even though he didn't really lose to the guy. But when you know there's a guy that wants to take you on consistently and it's not a clear-cut victory, he's, he, he, you know, he, he got to the, got to Chara. So I just think Chara's too darn big to really, most guys want to take him on. And if you, if you take him on, maybe you got to run him and then just, drop the gloves and start throwing him before he even knows he's in a fight. I don't know. That's about the only way you're going to beat him, Chris. Was there anyone who was 6'9 that you played against during your time on the ice? Or? Yeah, the only person that was ever 6'9 that I played, well, we didn't play against them. When I was uh, in the World Hockey in Houston, they used to have the NFL team there, the Houston Oilers. And so they had, I always remember the centerman was Carl Mock. And they had a couple of linemen that just loved to play hockey and they could skate. So they used to come to our practice and we'd do drills and we stand in the corner. And when you're centerman, you're, you know, especially in the NFL, you're big, you got big V upper bodies, you don't have big guts on you hanging over your pants. And so these guys would be in the corner and I'd be looking up at them and I always remember saying, Man, am I glad these guys can't skate. You know, they're not good hockey players because I would not want to play against them. These guys are like houses on skates. They were just huge, huge. So we never had anybody, you know, there was a guy named Fred Arthur who I think I, I Googled him the other day. I fought him and I, I beat him pretty good. 
And he was like 6'5". But again, um, I got, you know, we squared off and I got close enough to him that all of a sudden I just sprung with a left and a right and a left. And I connected and down he went. So, but overall, nobody was that big, not even close. This is another off-topic question, then we'll get to the last question. But do you remember who the shortest player you ever played against was? Uh, one extreme to the other, huh? I, I can't come up with names. There's there's plenty of guys that I don't think any was five five. I think there was a few that were five six five seven range, but you know they they would always they would weigh in at anywhere from like one fifty five to one seventy five, and when you're that size, you're not a banger. You know you're a skater, and that's you know you know you're there to skate like a Johnny Goudreau. He's there to skate and make opportunities and hang on to the puck. So I can't I can't think of anybody, you know, that was that size and that weight that was, you know, anybody that I really remember. So we'll go to our last question. And uh, this has to do with, I guess, the man of the hour, the last couple of weeks that people are discovering or rediscovering, uh, Steve Durbano. So this question comes from Bob, and he says, I like your podcast and listen to a few others as well, and I've started listening to the one on Durbano and wondered if you had any stories or run-ins with him back in the day. Thanks, and keep the stories coming. So like we mentioned, check out episode 30, but you did think of a couple more, and uh, I'll let you talk about that. The Durbano stories that I wanted to talk about was... Pierre LaRouche was a guy, if you Google him, he scored 50 goals in the NHL twice. And I believe he's actually on the payroll for Pittsburgh Penguins. He's a friend of Mario, Mario Lemieux. That's a pretty good friend to have. And uh, Pierre was telling me when he played for Pittsburgh that Durbano was there. And that uh, one story, I believe, one story, I'm not so sure. I'm gullible. I'm, it might be true. But he said, you know, at training camp, we're all working out all summer. When you come to, to training camp, they got you on the weights and you're measuring, you know, lung capacity and how many chin-ups you can do. And they put you through a whole bunch of tests. And everybody is focused on doing their very best in these tests. And so they had him, you know, giving him a I think it was like an EKG test. They put him on a stationary bike and all the players... They were, you were wired up to a monitor and a measure whatever. And so the guys were in one room, so they went into the room that Dubano was in, and he's all wired up, and he's riding a stationary bike having a smoke when they're testing him. And so, you know, that was pretty funny. Like, who does that? Obviously, he didn't care too much. He was having a smoke when he's supposed to be, you know, riding and giving it his all. So that was pretty funny. And the other one, okay, here's the one I, Pierre LaRouche promised me that this was true. I, I, like I said, I'm gullible, but I said, I don't know, Pierre. He says, no, I'm telling you it's the truth. So back in the day, Philadelphia Flyers, they had their tough team where they had five or six tough guys. And they used to be like a guerrilla warfare. When you went into their building called the Spectrum, um, you knew it was going to be a rough game all night. You just knew it. And as you've heard the phrase, the Broad Street Bullies. 
So Pittsburgh Pierre said they were in the spectrum playing the Flyers with Flyers' top team. And like I said before, you know, Dubano, he was a little wacky. And I never really wanted to fight the guy because I just knew every time I played him, he'll jump you from behind. He'd spear you in the head. Like, he, he just was, there was something missing there. And I didn't want to have to be dealing with this guy the rest of my life. So if I could avoid him, I, 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 I would rather avoid the guy. So... The story goes is that when Pittsburgh was in the, spe- the spectrum, it was a rough game as expected. And there was a face-off right in front of the Flyers' bench. And uh, I don't know about today, but back then, especially when you got a tough team, they were sitting there chirping Dubano, talking about him, saying shit to him, and he's got his head down waiting for the face-off. And so my understanding is Dubano thought the trainer was the guy yapping at him from the bench from... Uh, from the flyer, so Dubano, he just turned and he speared the trainer right in the mouth, and so that kicked off a brawl. And every single, because you don't hurt the trainers, right? So all the flyers jumped over the bench and went after Dubano. Now here's the part that I'm not so sure about. So the Roos said that Dubano was skating away from these guys and they chased him down to the far end, and he pushed the goalie out of the net. And then he jumped inside the net and turned it around and he went and hit against the boards. He pulled the net to the boards so that the Flyers couldn't get at him. And so I said, come on, who does that? He goes, no, no. He said he, he, he used the net to hide in against the boards and then the refs came and kind of broke it out, broke it up and he obviously was uh, kicked out of the game. So I can't tell you that was a true story, but LaRouche swore to God it was a true story. So that those are my two Durbano stories. Okay, sounds good, Dad. We'll see how the playoffs turn out. We'll see uh, how your new prediction, I guess, is St. Louis is who you're. Yeah. How how they'll go? What you want to say? St. Louis? Well, no. All I'm going to say, I don't even know if the game's over. So when I go upstairs, I'm going to put the game on, and if it's over and St. Louis is out, what do I know? But if they're still playing, my prediction's still alive. Okay. Well, this will be posted on Monday, so I guess we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so again, feel free to send us an email. We appreciate your reviews. And uh, until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam. Thank you.